Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Yasha Munk is a German-American political scientist at John Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. He's also the founder of the political online magazine Persuasion. He has written extensively on the threat posed by anti-democratic ideologies to democratic systems, and he discusses that also in his podcast, The Good Fight. He's also written books on the challenge posed by right-wing authoritarian populism. But his new new book, The Identity Trap, looks at a parallel challenge from the progressive left. In The Identity Trap, Yasha looks at the intellectual roots of contemporary political concepts such as intersectionality and critical race theory, which he argues represent a wrong turn for those who believe in concepts such as universal rights and the possibility of social progress. Yasha, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'll start with a question which I'm sure some of our listeners will be asking themselves because we're in the midst of quite a heightened debate about the threat from the right to democracy because of events which have happened in Dublin over the last uh, few days. And I suppose that question boils down to surely the threat from the right is much more serious than the threat from the left and the threat from the left is overstated. Well, so, uh, look, you know, I've been uh, warning about the threat from the right for a long time. I like to say that I'm a democracy crisis hipster. I worried about the populist threat to democracy before it was cool. So I certainly share with you the concern about right-wing populists in the United States, where Donald Trump may very well become president again in 2024 and in countries from Hungary to India and beyond. At the same time, I do think that it is worth examining and understanding the new ideology, the new set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation that has become dominant in big parts of the left. And that is uh, for three reasons. First of all, because it often leads to policies that are bad in themselves. When I see, for example, uh, many elite American schools now divide eight, seven, six-year-old kids up by race and uh, aiming explicitly to make children think of themselves as quote-unquote racial beings, um, I think uh, that that is uh, going to make it harder to build diverse democracies that actually work. Secondly, because it often leads to really bad public policy. Um, so, for example, in the United States during the pandemic, we've seen a number of protocols for triage for rare medical goods uh, based on ethnicity uh, and skin color in ways that I both I think ultimately killed more people, including more non-white people, uh, and that I think, uh, again, have a potential to lead to really bad zero-sum conflict between different ethnic blocs. But thirdly, I think it's also important for strategic reasons, for tactical reasons. Um, One of the reasons why this set of ideas became really dominant in the United States after 2016 was that when Donald Trump was elected president, it became very hard to criticize bad ideas on the left because you'd be branded as a traitor who's secretly running interference for Donald Trump. But one of the reasons why Donald Trump is now leading in polls for 2024, why, uh, a judgment I don't personally agree with, of course, 
Um, more Americans say the Democratic Party is too extreme than say that the Republican Party is too extreme is that these ideas have uh, come to have a real hold over mainstream American institutions. So one of these ideologies is the yin to the other's yang. If you want to effectively oppose right-wing populism, you also have to make sure that these bad ideas on the left don't come to control a lot of our mainstream institutions. One of the great strengths of the book, I think, is the very lucid, clear, and readable way in which it explores the intellectual roots of some of these ideas. We're talking about thinkers who are kind of whose whose names are are widely used in academia, but some of whom may be less familiar in the broader world. And I think, in addition to that, some people just find them, you know, intimidating uh, because of the way in which they write and the concepts which they discuss. And you start with with Michel Foucault. Maybe you could talk a little bit about why you start with Michel Foucault. Yeah, so one of the really striking things to me is that I, I generally think that this body of ideas is interesting and worth engaging with, and that there's something really new about it. You know, I'm on the left, I joined the German Social Democratic Party when I was 13 years old. I had to lie on my membership form because really you weren't only allowed to join once you were 14. But what it was to be left-wing in the 1990s or the 2000s when I was in college and university is, is quite different from what it is uh, to be left-wing now. There's a genuinely new ideology that has arisen, and it's striking how little work has gone into genuinely understanding it. And so, in particular, there is no serious intellectual history of where these ideas come from. And as a result, the only people who've written about this are, you know, frankly, right-wing polemicists um, who have generally uh, described this as a form of cultural Marxism. So they think that you can understand these ideas by taking the Marxist tradition taking out social class and putting in identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation. Now, um, I think that uh, this is wrong substantively. Um, if you take out class from Marxist analysis uh, uh, and put something else in, there's not much left of it. It's a little bit like saying, you know, you're, you're taking uh, the football out of football and, you know, adding tennis rackets and somehow you're left with the same sport. It just doesn't make much sense. But in particular, it's wrong as a matter of intellectual history, when you trace back where these ideas or these schools I was talking about come from, why it is that they think that it's good to split kids up by race at the age of six or seven or eight, the Marxist tradition just isn't going to get you very far. On the other hand, if you start with a thought of somebody like Michel Foucault and the postmodernist tradition, and then go through uh, the other main traditions that constitute what are called the identity synthesis, which is post-colonialism and critical race theory, you really start to get to these ideas. Now, why is Foucault at the beginning of this? Because he rejects uh, what we might call grand narratives. He rejects these big attempts to structure the world, to make sense of how the world works, which include both Marxism and liberalism and the basic uh, components of the liberal democracies we have Today, um, he becomes very skeptical of claims to absolute truth, very skeptical of the idea that we've been able to make political progress, and actually quite skeptical of identity categories themselves. Um, this proves both really appealing and repelling to later generations of thinkers who love using Foucault in order to undermine uh, the universal values and neutral rules of liberal democracy, to claim that the societies are deeply corrupt, that we have to reject all of the ideologies that came before. But they also worry that Foucault is not political enough, that he ends up, in his general skepticism, not giving us the tools we need for political battle. So they take his general skepticism about our political order, but then 
uh, try to repoliticize it, and that really sets up, sets into motion the set of ideas that you can still observe on the uh, uh, you know far left among progressive activists today. And a, a telling part of the story you tell with with Foucault and some of the other intellectuals who who you describe in the book is that um, it's quite possible that they would have been horrified by how this has turned out in the contemporary world. Foucault, for example, you point out, uh, was not keen at all on notions such as LGBT identity or uh, homosexual identity. He was, he was what we would now call a gay man himself, but those are exactly the kind of signifiers that he, he chose to reject. Yes, that's, that's what's really interesting about the story. So Foucault himself is, in our parlance, as you said, a, a gay man or a homosexual, um, but he thought that that label, uh, you know, overly restricted the variety of sexual experiences that people have. Um, and in a really interesting exchange with another postmodernist, post-structuralist thinker, um, uh, Gilles Deleuze, he uh, uh, says, you know, the, the way in which intellectuals, especially in the Marxist tradition, used to want to speak for the proletariat, speak for other people, uh, is very dangerous. Um you have to let people people speak for themselves. And so here you get the post-colonial thinkers coming in, people like Gayatri uh, Spivak, a, a Indian literary theorist, deeply steeped in the postmodernist and post-structuralist tradition. Um, she uh, makes her name by introducing and translating uh, Jacques Derrida's most important work. Um, and she thinks, look, this can help us think through how we can govern ourselves uh, now that we have newly independent nations, how we don't just take over those Western ideologies. That's what attracted her to these ideas. But she also thought, hang on a second, um, we do need these identity categories. We do need these broader claims to truth in order to be able to do political battle. You know, perhaps a white worker in the streets of Paris can speak for themselves. Well, um, you know, the so-called subaltern, the people she's most concerned with in the, in the streets of Calcutta can't do that. We do need to be able to speak on behalf of them to uh, be able to resist injustice. And so she comes up with this puzzling term, which she herself acknowledges isn't entirely internally coherent. She says, mind, mind is not a search for coherence, called strategic essentialism. So she says, you know, philosophically speaking, these essentialist notions of identity, like the claim that, you know, there's something essential that all homosexuals share with each other, you know, they're really suspect, they're really wrong, and Foucault and others are right about that. But for practical political purposes, to resist, we have to embrace them, we have to act as though they were true. And that helps to explain why if you go to a progressive uh, activist meeting today, whether that's in New York City or in Dublin, uh, people might say, well, race is of course a social construct, but we have to listen to, we have to delegate our judgment to black and brown people or to people of color or to BIPOC people, right? You have these kind of essentialist identity categories that immediately get used after that sort of lip service being paid to the ideas, to, to, to the notion that, that these uh, essentialist ideas are somehow wrong. That helps to explain why these educators in, in, in the United States now think that they're doing something good by encouraging uh, black students, Latino students, Asian Americans, and even white students to own the racial identity. Um, but not only would Foucault have viewed this very skeptically, have recognized, I think, a form of the kind of panopticum he worries about in discipline and punish and the way we now discipline each other on social media, uh, but other thinkers in the tradition did as well. Spivak herself uh, started to worry that the notion of strategic essentialism uh, had just become what she calls the union ticket for a more vulgar form of 
essentialism, the lip service we pay to how difficult these ideas are before embracing them completely uncritically. And referring to the tea wallers who sell tea in the streets of India, she started to mock the identity wallers at universities uh, who fixate on these identity categories in ways that she found to be troubling. And I suppose as, a, as an American academic of Indian background, I mean, she could see, you know, that some of these ideas were possibly being appropriated by, you know, right-wing Hindu nationalism, as we see, as we see currently in India. Yes, so she was very worried, certainly about the way in which the BJP and the Hindutva movement uh, made use of identity. And she was also worried about the transformation at American universities themselves. The same, by the way, is true for for uh, Edward Said, another key figure in this tradition, um, who, you know, in Orientalism, his hugely influential work drew heavily on uh, what he calls uh, Mr. Foucault's notion of a discourse, of the idea that the real way that political power is exercised is um, the kind of way in which we exercise power over each other and you know, the way we frame this conversation. For example, this actually is an exercise of political power for Foucault. But um, you know, Said worries that Foucault thinks all discourses are as damaging as each other, where Said, you know, plausibly says, no, some are worse than others. You know, one set of discourses has justified colonial rule for a long time. Our task is to give the colonizer power to resist the colonizers. But he too comes to worry about the way in which this ideology then takes on a life of its own and says, uh, for example, that the point is not to be a victim or to take pride in victimhood um, or to encourage people to frame themselves as victims. The point is to overcome victimhood. The point is to build a society where people are less defined by the ways in which the ancestors may have been victimized on the basis of the race or the uh, you know identity categories into which they were born. I think the way in which you describe those ideas, and particularly Spivak's ideas, sort of was a light bulb moment for me reading it because I've, I've wondered for years why you know systems of categorization which do have their roots in imperial subjugation, uh, in in misogyny, in the ways in which the differing roles of men or women or white people or non-white people have been defined in the 19th and 20th century, have been appropriated, uh, sort of turned around by by the people who, who, who were subjugated at one point, been appropriated rather than being destroyed, which I would have thought would have been a better political project. Yeah, it's one of the really interesting things about it. It's, by the way, one of the uh, disanalogies with a, with a tradition of Marxism, uh, which I have sort of different bones to pick with, but which at, at its end had a universalist promise, which is to say that, you know, there's going to be a world revolution when there's a little bit of a black box, but finally we have a great communist society in which class categories have fallen by the wayside, in which everybody is each other's comrade. And some people who, uh, you know, talk about the way in which things like race are a social construct end up coming to, an, to a parallel conclusion. So, for example, Barbara and Karen Fields are two very interesting African-American scholars who talk about racecraft and the fact that as long as we use uncritically these concepts of race, they're always going to hold this troubling power over us. And so they, uh, uh, you know, want a society in which categories of race become less important. But that is not the conclusion that most members of this tradition take. They want a society in which how we treat each other and how the state treats all of us will always uh, depend in very serious ways on, on, on our ascribed race, but also on other kinds of identity characteristics. So that is one way in which I think the new ideas on the left really go against the kind of more aspirational left that actually is more ambitious about the kind of society we should build. 
that um, I prize. And another thing that's, I think, important to point out is that I'm not arguing against all forms of quote-unquote identity politics. I think that, that's such a broad term that it's a little bit unhelpful. But there's certainly some identity-based movements that I think have uh, helped us make the world a much better place. Um, certainly Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. and, if you like, Barack Obama in the black American tradition have engaged in a kind of form of uh, identity politics. And I think the gay rights activists who have you know, transformed Ireland, for example, from a country that was deeply homophobic a number of decades ago to a country that accepts same-sex marriage, um, are, are kind of engaged in identity politics. But, but there's a very important distinction here, which is that they were emphasizing and recognizing our hypocrisy and excluding some people from equal treatment, but they aspired to that equal treatment. Frederick Douglass, in his most important speech uh, commemorating the 4th of July, said, you all are hypocrites to talk about all men being created equal, while some of my brethren are still in chains across this country. But the solution is not to rip up the Constitution of the Declaration of Independence. It is to live up to those precepts, to actually treat African-Americans the same. You know, when you fast forward to the gay rights movement and you talk to some of its early advocates, um, and by the way, some of the people who helped to win the referendum in Ireland, they talk very thoughtfully about having a struggle within the gay rights movement as well um, against people, for example, who argued in the 80s and 90s, we don't want marriage. That's a terrible bourgeois institution. What are you talking about, right? We're going to be ones who, just, you know, who, who transform all of these social customs. Say, no, 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 no. What we want, the problem with the institution of marriage is not that there's something wrong with it, is that we're not included in it. And the way we're going to get social recognition is to ask people, what's different about our love? By, by what virtue are you excluding us from something that uh, people who are heterosexual enjoy? That's been the set of movements that has allowed us to make tremendous progress towards imperfect but uh, much more equal, much more fair societies. And the, the tradition that uh, I, I, I criticize in the identity trap rejects that very explicitly. Derek Bell, the founder of critical race theory, for example, sees himself as a critic of a civil rights movement. He says we have to reject what he calls, quote-unquote, the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. So this is really a very radical tradition that's come to have tremendous influence today. So Bell and your your portrait of him is is very interesting. Is somebody who begins his life, uh, so he's not somebody who spent his, his entire life in academia. He begins his life as a as a lawyer. He's sort of embedded in the civil rights movement in the in 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 his early years. You know the the move to desegregate schools and and, and other things like that. So he becomes disillusioned as as a result of his experiences through that. So in a way an awful lot of that and perhaps other parts of the phenomenon you're describing can be seen as a backlash or a counter to the kind of the, the progressive movements of the first half of the 20th century? Uh, yes, and, 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 and the second half of the 20th century as well. You know, Derek Bell is a really interesting figure, a brilliant African-American lawyer who helps working for the NAACP uh, to desegregate a lot of schools and other institutions throughout the American South. And he has some uh, perfectly legitimate frustrations with how that plays out. Um, he, you know, for example, realizes that some of the clients he's arguing for who want to go to integrated schools um, never get the benefit of those court rulings because by the time that uh, court cases are decided, they've graduated high school, they're off to college, right? They can no longer take advantage of that. But he, he starts to draw really a very radical conclusion from that, which is that the famous Supreme Court ruling of Brown versus Board of Education 
which helped to uh, reject uh, the supposed standard of separate but equal, which had ruled the American South for many decades, was perhaps in some ways a mistake. But in a certain circumstances, we should have aimed for schools that are separate but truly equal. Um, and he comes to claim that the United States not only has made insufficient progress on race, or that obviously racial injustice is still structure of a country in a deep way, all of which is true, but that the country in the year 2000 is basically as racist as it was in 1950 or as racist as it was in 1850, that the nature of racism had sort of shapeshifted, but not attenuated at all. And so I think that helps to explain to what extent the tradition of critical race theory is not just thinking critically about the role that race plays in society, which is something we should all do, um, but is very explicitly a counter-tradition to what has always been the mainstream, the dominant uh, black intellectual tradition in the United States. You know, another key figure in critical race theory, Kimberly Crenshaw, writing briefly after the election of Barack Obama, is saying that, you know, his political philosophy is fundamentally at odds with the key tenets of critical race theory. Um, so, you know, I've enjoyed reading the work of these thinkers, the, you know, serious academics who, who have something to contribute to our understanding of the world. Um, but I just think that they are fundamentally wrong, um, that, uh, you know, Barack Obama and Martin Luther King and um, uh, Frederick Douglass, as well as many of the leaders of the, of a gay rights movement who won advances like same-sex marriage, um, just have a lot more to teach us about how to build fairer, more thriving societies. One of the things about this movement, if I can even call it a movement, I'm not. I'm not sure if I can. This this set of ideas is is it's very shape shifting. It's very often internally paradoxical. It doesn't really have a name. There are terms of abuse for it. Uh, people on the right generally call it woke or wokeism or something of that sort. Other people call it identity politics, which I I think you've already said, and I agree with it. It's not a very not a very helpful term. Is it unusual to have such a powerful movement that doesn't have a name? And I wonder why it doesn't have a name. I think it is unusual that it doesn't have a name, and I think that is a kind of power move. Um, uh, you know, so let's take socialism, right? Some of your listeners might think of themselves as socialists. Some of them might really dislike socialism. But we can all agree to call it socialism, and that's useful because then we can have a serious conversation about it. Hopefully, right? You know, the term woke is originally a self-description by activists, but then it attracted opprobrium and, and attacks. And now, you know, I avoid the term because it makes you sound a little bit like an old man shouting at the clouds, right? And so we really don't have a term uh, that can in a neutral way describe this ideology. I, in the book, uh, suggest the identity synthesis, just because I think we are talking about a set of ideas about group identity and the way in which they do and should structure society according to this ideology, and it is a synthesis of these different intellectual traditions we've talked about, from postmodernism to postcolonialism to critical race theory. I have no great hopes that this term is going to sort of come into common parlance, but it at least allows us to have a serious conversation. Now, why are we struggling for uh, a neutral term? I think in part because a lot of people dislike the ideology, so any term applied to it starts to be pejorative. But in part because I think some of the public defenders of this ideology want to disclaim the fact that it is an ideology. They want to say, well, all this is is being nice and reasonable, and anybody who disagrees with us is a bad person. And, and that, I have to say, is a fundamentally dishonest move. I don't think that most of the main theorists in this tradition are dishonest, but I think that is just a dishonest intellectual move. It's quite clear that we're dealing with a new set of ideas, and uh, we need to be able to talk about them, and for that we need a name. So, you know, uh, one blogger said... Um, 
I don't care what we call it. You know, we can call it the thing. Just tell me what we can call it so we can have a conversation about it. And I sort of share that, uh, uh, share, share that sentiment. Um, the other thing for I'll say is I don't think that this ideology is less coherent or less, you know, more variegated than most ideologies. I mean, most ideologies, you know, you're never going to find the exact set of demands that everybody who signs up to it uh, uh, agree with. Um, I mean, unless you have a powerful institution like the Catholic Church that can sort of, you know, apply an orthodoxy at the pain of excommunication to a movement. But in the book, I try to uh, give a definition of some of the core claims of these ideas. So in the first part of the book, I tell the intellectual history that we've talked a lot about today. In the second part of the book, I explain how these ideas went from being influential in universities, but pretty marginal to society as a whole, to really having a, a tremendous influence over mainstream institutions. In the third part of the book, I uh, critically examine the application of these ideas to many social debates today, from uh, ideas like cultural appropriation to free speech to uh, our kind of pedagogical standards and approaches uh, to what's often called race-sensitive public policy to um, you know, actions by the state that explicitly distinguish between people by the group into which we're from. But in the fourth part, I sort of step back and I say, all right, um, can we have a, a, what philosophers call a rational reconstruction of these ideas, a way to re-boil them down to the main claims? And, and I think you can. And those three claims are basically, number one, that the core prism for understanding society, the main way to understand what's happening is to look at it through identity categories like race, gender, and sexual orientation. Number two, that universal uh, values and neutral rules, the kind of way in which democracies have traditionally ruled themselves, are really just an attempt to pull the wool over your eyes. They're really just an attempt to perpetuate and cloak the kind of racial and sexual and other domination that has historically uh, characterized our societies. And third, but therefore, in order to make progress, we have to reject those universal values and neutral rules and make how people treat each other explicitly depend on the kind of uh, groups of which they are a part. I mean, you've explained already why you think the cultural Marxism framing is, is, is incorrect because of the profound differences between what you might call socialism, as it was understood in the past, and, and this movement. But it is true to an extent, isn't it? And you do touch on this in the book that to some extent, one of the reasons this movement gained strength was because there was a vacuum to, to fill with the decline of traditional Marxism in the, in the 1980s and after the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and the Soviet Union. So there was a bit of a vacuum there, which, which it seemed to fill. Is, is, is that not the case? Yes, absolutely. So I do think that, um, you know, the left was mostly focused on economics uh, for a long time, both because, uh, you know, a much greater share of people in Western Europe or North America were very, very poor. And so it made for a more natural locus of politics. But also because certainly after 1917, um, you know, there's a big, powerful state whose ruling ideology was based around class struggle. And that gave the left uh, a, a reference point, uh, which remained important for a very long time. Um, now, you know, after the Soviet Union invaded Hungary in 1956 and Czechoslovakia, as it was then in 1968, um, some of that uh, allure started to fade and you started to see the rise of more identity-based movements. But it was really only after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the Soviet Union a couple of years later that those forms of economic uh, 
politics, that form of class struggle, uh, came to have less salience and came to have less appeal. And so into that vacuum flooded this uh, the popularized version of his academic theory, which had started to uh, be formulated in the preceding decades. And the other part of that is that there's a there's clearly a reaction, and I'm not a great believer in horseshoe theory, but there is clearly a reaction from both right and left, a backlash against what is seen as the dominant ideology of the years since the fall of the Berlin Wall, what some people describe as neoliberalism, what others describe as globalism, uh, and and each in their own different ways from right and left are, are a backlash against that. And along with that, a backlash against some of the broader ideas you describe here, such as concepts of universal rights. Yeah, that is right. For I, I guess I, I, the relationship between this set of ideas and that economic critique is quite complicated because I think that there is a variant of the identity trap, uh, which is quite... Uh, economically radical, um, where people think that, you know, naturally it goes hand in hand with a rejection of capitalism. Mm. But then on the other hand, of course, as some, you know, Marxist scholars have pointed out, this ideology has been appropriated to a remarkable extent by corporations, uh, by big business, uh, by upper middle class people. Um, you know, Coca-Cola company uh, ran a uh, training using Robin DiAngelo, one of the most visible uh, popularizers of these ideas, which featured a, a slide about how to be less white, uh, with some advice that, by the way, I find to be straightforwardly racist. Not reverse racist against whites, but racist against non-whites, claiming that to be less white, you have to be less punctual, less perfectionist. Uh, some you know implies that somehow non-white people uh, have those virtues to a lesser degree, which I, I, I should be offensive under any circumstances. So, you know, you, you see the appropriation of some of these ideas uh, by corporations. And you see, of course, when you study the socioeconomic characteristics of people who, sh who believe in those ideas, that they are a very elite group. So one uh, interesting study looking at the different kind of ideological tribes in the United States um, looked at uh, the group of progressive activists who, roughly speaking, share the set of ideas I talk about in the book. And we found that this was the second most white political tribe in the United States. It was a, uh, a very affluent political tribe and it was an extremely highly educated political tribe. Which is to say that in many ways this is not the organic demand of uh, the subaltern, as Spivak might have put it. Um, it is uh, the ideology of a mostly affluent, mostly white, highly educated elite class in society. So what exactly is is going on there? I, I, I do wonder, it seems to me, uh, you may disagree, that this movement is at its most powerful and most expressive in the United States. And then beyond that, more in the Anglophone world than, than elsewhere. And that may, to some extent, reflect the, you know, the cultural power of the United States, particularly in the, in the Anglophone world. It seems to me sometimes that there is something peculiarly American. There's a sort of a a moral progressivism underpinning some of this, which seems to me to have some roots in more deeply in, in the American story. Yeah, you know, there's two different ways of thinking about the nature of this ideology and therefore about the way in which it'll spread. And I actually think that both uh, apply to some extent and, and that allows you to, to make quite specific predictions. Um, so uh, the first is simply that this is a uh, set of cultural influences, right? That this is... Um, 
uh, a set of ideas that's quite powerful that can be transmitted in the form of all kinds of memes and social media postings. And that, as in many other areas of culture, the United States is often ahead and, uh, you know, Anglophone countries are three years behind and um, Western European countries that are not Anglophone are five years behind and perhaps some countries further afield are seven or ten years behind, but eventually it'll come everywhere. I, I've just returned from Paris and for many years um, people in France said that McDonald's will never come here and, and now I think uh, France has something like the second most McDonald's per capita in the Western world. Somebody told me this, I'm not sure it's true actually, but it certainly has a lot of McDonald's, right? Uh, and so uh, on that model, yes, it, it, it influences much stronger in Britain and in Ireland uh, today than it was five years ago. Um, and perhaps it'll be much stronger still in three years, just as it's continued to grow in the United States uh, uh, at a very rapid pace over the course of the last decade. Um, I think there's something to this, but there's also a second way of thinking about this. And this is to think, not as some interesting writers like John McWhorter put it, um, as literally a religion. Um, I, I don't think that's quite true, but as certainly filling a religion-shaped hole. And in particular, as filling a religion-shaped hole that, given America's uh, history, is uh, Puritan. So I think Europeans sometimes look at America and they say, you know, America is a Puritan country because there's some people in the Midwest and the Bible Belt that sort of are very religious or something like that. I, I think that's, uh, uh, that's wrong. That's a slightly different religious tradition. It's my friends and colleagues um, at places like Ivy League universities who are still deeply shaped by the Puritan moral imaginary. They may not share any of the propositional ideas uh, of that tradition, right? They don't think that it's wrong to have sex before marriage or anything like that. But the sense that there's a moral community that has to be pure and that anybody who sins within the moral community is going to um, upset it and must therefore be excom excommunicated is about as strong at Harvard today as it was in 1800 when it was a straightforwardly Puritan institution. And that, I think, does make these ideas very appealing uh, in the United States. Now, if, if, if that's what you think, um, you might end up saying that, for example, you know, the, the Netherlands uh, will end up with a stronger acceptance of these ideas than, you know, more Catholic regions in in Europe, or perhaps you can you might distinguish between more, more Protestant regions of benevolence and more Catholic regions of of benevolence. And in the same way, you might say, you know, Ireland and, and the United Kingdom uh, both have a strong affinity to the United States. Um, both uh, are Anglophone. Both have strong cultural links. But perhaps these ideas will end up being more influential uh, uh, in the United Kingdom than in Ireland because of the different religious histories of of, of those two nations. I have no idea whether that will turn out to be true, but it might be an interesting way of testing. Um, this prediction. That would be very, very interesting indeed. Um, there's one other thing that strikes me, which is that particularly in the United States, but also increasingly elsewhere, um, the existence of this this set of ideas and its uh, and the power which it commands in certain parts of society, academia we mentioned, possibly parts of the media, possibly certain other areas as well, has become in itself a sort of a, a political cudgel particularly for the right. And we can see that in particular with, you know, certain key members of the Republican Party, including some presidential candidates at the moment. I think we can see it in the United Kingdom as well. The the idea, the, the almost apocalyptic presentation of how these ideas have, have assumed hegemonic control over the commanding heights of the intellectual economy, if not the economic one, has become a political battlefield in itself. I wonder, do you think, does that affect the way in which everybody else who perhaps isn't directly involved in the battle will end up thinking about these ideas. 
Uh, yes, and 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 you know the, the hardest thing to do is to uh, you know you're in the middle of an argument and you know somebody uh, in a really simplistic way and in bad faith uh, starts saying something that might superficially look similar to what you're saying and um, uh, you know that that always puts you in a difficult position. Um, I don't think that's a reason to change your mind. I don't think that's a reason to suddenly think that that what is uh, objectively a problem uh, uh, you know you should no longer talk about and and there's a kind of instinct that I often see among my fellow academics and journalists where you say, well, look, I mean, some problem in the world could be exploited by bad people. So let's not talk about it. Um, but if a problem is a real one, I think that's clever by half because uh, people aren't stupid and voters aren't stupid and they can see when there's a problem. And they can certainly see when people secretly think there's a problem, but they don't want to talk about it publicly. And certainly in the United States and perhaps in Ireland, uh, that is very strongly the case now. I'm struck by how often over the course of the last five years I have had coffee or lunch with friends who are in ordinary walks of life or sometimes you know, CEOs of big corporations or senators of the United States. And they you know, express the kind of measured criticisms of these ideas that I've talked about today. And then they immediately add, but of course I would never say this publicly. Um, and I think people can smell it. Uh, when they see that the people who are supposed to speak for them um, aren't telling them the truth, are speaking differently to their friends over uh, a pint than they are when they are on TV. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of my goal in this book is to do two things. Firstly, to show people who are torn that it is worth worrying about these ideas, people who feel the injustices that, that certainly do still structure our societies, clearly and uh, therefore are attracted to a set of ideas that promises to reject them, um, but who are also starting to see how these ideas can be censorious and how they can lead us in the wrong direction, how splitting kids up by race in uh, primary school is not in fact going to make the world a better place. I want to help them see why this does not represent the best of the left, the best of a political tradition that gave us great uh, uh, political advances. But I also want to speak to people who perhaps are already convinced that these ideas are bad and who at the moment feel that the only people who are willing to voice that critique are on the right, that the only people who will actually say out loud what a lot of people are concerned about um, are people who then use that in order to throw our entire set of institutions out of the bathwater, to say that we shouldn't trust anybody, that all politicians are terrible, that our institutions are worthless. And that is very much not the conclusion that uh, I come to or that I want readers of my book or the identity trap to come to. So I, I, you know, rather than sort of thinking, oh, you know, since this could be used by the right, let's shut up about it. I think what we should do is to uh, express this critique in an intellectually serious and politically measured way, um, uh, because that's much more likely to ensure that people um, stick to the aspirational values. Isn't there a challenge? I mean, I usually try and cast around before talking to somebody on the on this podcast and I say, well, you know, what debates have been going on around the book? And I certainly have no doubt that you would be keen to engage with people who hold to some of the beliefs which you analyse in the book. But in a world of social media, of substacks, and indeed of podcasts, an awful lot of which are preaching to the converted there's not as much of you or other people having a conversation with the people who you're disagreeing with, if you know what I mean. That is a, That seems to be lacking to me. What do you think? 
Well, uh, look, I mean, I, for this book, have been very willing to go on uh, you know, every uh, uh, TV and radio show I, and I, I'm certainly not, it, this is certainly, it's certainly not a criticism of you. It's more an observation no, no, about whatever way the, the contemporary information architecture has, has developed, that the space for that seems, to, if anything, to have decreased rather than increased. Well, but, but let me say two things to this. I mean, the first is that I actually am very happy in terms of the reception of this book uh, you know, and my ability to talk to to shows and audiences that are very robustly left wing, and we have had interesting conversations. And sometimes the host has broadly agreed with me. Sometimes they clearly disagreed with me, and we sort of had it out. And and so I think I've I've reached you know hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people in those conversations uh, in a way that that I found to be really satisfying. I will say something slightly more pointed for, which is, I, I, I mentioned earlier, I just returned from France, and I'm struck by the fact that in France, the people who represent these ideas, the people who are broadly, quote-unquote, woke or seen as that, um, are willing to have debates. And that's because these ideas haven't gained the same victory there yet. So um, there's a, a woman called Rokaya Diallo, um, who is uh, sort of, in some ways, the most visible representative of this political tradition in France, um, who has become a sort of friend of mine. Uh, because we have debated in in various uh, contexts about these ideas, um, and we're able to have robust disagreements and then have a beer after that. I have to say that in the Anglophone world, the people who embrace these ideas have by and large proven unwilling to engage with people who are critical of them. Um, and often they have actively tried to get them deplatformed, to cancel them. So when you look, for example, at a recent controversy uh, at TED, uh, you know, the organization that brings you 12-minute videos uh, that may or may not explain some aspect of the world, you know, there's a, a young black intellectual called Common Hughes, who's, you know, center, center-left guy, who's critical of some of those very sensitive public policies, who wants a set of policies in which the state doesn't explicitly distinguish between people by their skin color, and he was invited to hold a TED Talk, and then afterwards, um, there was a letter circulated by, you know, employees at TED basically saying we should not release this to the broader public because these ideas are so troubling. And the organization, the details of it are a little bit complicated and murky, but essentially caved to those demands. You know, so so I agree with you that we have to be able to have these conversations. But But I would say on this particular topic... Uh, if that is difficult, it's because of the choices of the most visible uh, popularizers of this ideology who simply claim that anybody who disagrees with them is unacceptable. And, and there's reasons for that in the ideology, right? If you look at someone like Iram X. Kendi, one of the best-selling authors of 2020, um, you know, he basically echoes what George W. Bush said after 9-11. He said, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. Um, and, and Kendi says... You know, you're either racist or anti-racist. There's no such thing as being uh, not racist. And of course, what it means to be anti-racist is to agree his very particular uh, understanding of it. Um, and so, you know, by virtue of disagreeing with him, he would cast you as a racist. And then he would say, well, why would I debate with a racist? But in a way, doesn't that bring us all the way back around to Michel Foucault in a way? Because what it is, is there's an understanding that the battlefield or the battleground is language itself. And so by uh, choosing not to uh, not to enter that framework, not not to engage in language at all with the opposition. That's a sort of that's a that's a that's a sort of political action of its own sort. 
Yes, and, and and again, it's sort of a politicized version of how Foucault thought about discourse. Because Foucault certainly, I think, was willing to engage with people and have debates with people. We had a really interesting debate with Noam Chomsky that I describe in, in the book. But in the sort of politicized version of that, where you are trying to use words as a cudgel a lot of the time and trying to uh, uh, you know claim that people who disagree with you are thereby off-limits, thereby bad people, um, uh, you know, that becomes a much more dangerous uh, weapon. And and by the way, I do think that part of a way to fight back against that is not to allow people to own terms in that kind of way. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm a, a proud and a convinced anti-racist. I just think that the best way to fight racism is to emphasize that the skin color you're born with does not define, morally speaking, who you are, does not define, uh, does not make it impossible for us to communicate across racial lines, should not be the governing principle for the societies we aspire to. Um, we should, of course, recognize the way in which it structures our societies to some extent at this point and leads to serious injustices. But the way to fight that is not to exoticize people in ways where we end up claiming, you know, if you stand at a different intersection of identities or of quote-unquote races from me, then we're not able to understand each other. Finally, I just wanted to ask you about two, I don't know if you read your reviews, but there were two reviews I read of, of, of the book, which I found interesting because in a way they they kind of distilled what I think would be the counter-argument from the left to this book. One in the, uh, it's on the Guardian website, I think it may have been in the Observer newspaper, and it sort of suge it suggests that these stories of children being separated on a racial basis in schools are, you know, are tiny example. You can always find anecdotes of this sort. It basically accuses you of, of basing the book on anecdata. And I, I, I'd just be interested in, in your response to that, because obviously it is a subject that's quite, it's a bit like jelly with a fork. It is quite difficult to nail down how significant the prevalence of a certain set of ideas across a range of educational institutions are. I'm not sure how much data there is. And the other point was in a review in the New York Times, which was quite snide, I think, about one of the one of the recommendations you make towards the end of the book, which is how how people who run companies should deal with these kinds of movements when they are erupted in their own companies. And basically, it it presented, I think, extremely unfairly, the whole book as a how to guide for rich CEOs for how to fend off fend off these ideas and preserve their hegemony. And the the reason I raise that is because it sort of encapsulates the argument, which is that by attacking these ideas you are defending the current ideological hegemony of a set of ideas which have failed many of us over the last 30 years. Blairism, Clintonism, globalism, neoliberalism, all those, all those kinds of ideas. And I suppose in the, in the old uh, world of the Marlon Brando in, in the film, what are you rebelling against? The response would be, what have you got? That in some ways, what's going on here is a revolution against a system which is decaying and failing. Well, let me very briefly uh, deal deal with both of those. Um, look, on the first, I had a day a few weeks ago where I did three interviews. And in the first interview, you know, the journalist said, well, this idea that we're splitting kids up by race at the age of seven or eight, that's just imaginary. I mean, perhaps there's one crazy school that does that, but that's not a real thing. The second and the third journalists, after we ended our conversation, both told me, you know, they're doing this in my kid's school. So the idea that this is a rare occurrence is, is simply wrong if you talk to anybody in the United States. And more broadly, I show examples of how big the influence of this is over very important political decisions in the book. So during the pandemic, 
um, nearly every country, I think, including Ireland, distributed, uh, you know, scarce COVID vaccines by age because the elderly were so much more likely to die from the pandemic. The, the Centers for Disease Control uh, said that we cannot make that recommendation even for according to our own model that would save thousands of lives because older Americans are disproportionately white. And they ended up with a really disastrous policy of giving it to essential workers, which included movie producers in LA and bankers in the state of New York and people like me who was a college professor in the state of Maryland, even though I was teaching via Zoom. Um, uh, it was a really bad policy that probably killed more Americans of every racial group. So that's hardly uh, an important example. This is an example of, you know, a public health authority in a once-in-a-century pandemic making life-and-death decisions based on these ideas. The other thing I will say is, you know, I do think that one of the hearts of this debate is about whether uh, we have made progress over the last decades or, or not. That if you think that we haven't made any progress on questions of race or sexual identity or sexual orientation in the last 50 years, then saying these universalist idealist ideals are all wrong, let's throw them out of a window, rip them up and start anew comes to be quite natural. I just think that that is deeply wrong. Um, if you think that, as Derek Bell did, that the United States in the year 2000 has not made any progress on race, you're being deeply offensive, not to the wonderful people living today, but to the people in 1950 or 1850 who suffered from much worse, more egregious forms of injustice. And if you look at a country like Ireland and you say that we haven't made any progress uh, on how we treat women or how we treat members of sexual minorities, I think you're just really living in denial about the kind of uh, lack of rights that women had when they were not able to get divorced, not able to get an abortion, about the kind of ways in which uh, gays and lesbians were treated uh, socially and, of course, in the inability, uh, which would have been unfought of 30 or 40 years ago in Ireland, to get their um, same-sex uh, partnerships uh, recognized by society and by the state. So, uh, yes, we have societies that, that, that do suffer from serious injustices, but we've been able to make very real progress and we've been able to make that process on the basis of these uh, universal uh, values and these neutral rules and giving up on them is depriving us of the best way to fight for a better future. Yasha Munk, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. And The Identity Trap by Yasha Munk is published by Penguin. Thanks very much to our producer Declan Conlon. We'll be back with you very soon. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>